Hello, welcome to Talk of the Times. I'm Steve Evans. And I'm Alex Crow. In this week's podcast, where do we stand with vaccines? We've got with us Sally White, who covers politics and health for the Canberra Times. And Peter Martin is business and economy editor of The Conversation and a visiting fellow at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the ANU. So the big issue, why is Australia's vaccine rollout happening so slowly? So many reasons. The the main thing to think about here is the supply of vaccines. Until recently, we were almost solely reliant on vaccines that came from overseas. Our sovereign capacity of vaccines here is building up. We're getting there. Uh, and the other thing that has meant that our plans have gone a little bit skew with has been the changed advice around the AstraZeneca vaccine. That was originally going to be the major big plank of our vaccine rollout. And they've had to change that based on, on health advice. Peter, is it important? I mean, there's not much coronavirus in Australia at the moment. So does it matter? We are standing here outside Parliament House and I've just come from inside where the Treasurer was asked that question. And he said that, yes, uh, the decisions, the announcements uh, about when Australia will be vaccinated uh, that are in the budget and when the borders will be open are in the budget, but they're not economic decisions. They're decisions made on health grounds. However, he said, until the borders reopen, and that can't happen, until I think 80% or 80 or 90% of the population is vaccinated, the economy can't really stand on its own two feet. Everything depends on that. So what he did in the talk was to completely put to one side or or really uh, deride the argument that we've got a choice between health and the economy. Health first, and then the economy will hopefully prosper. In the meantime, he was sort of saying he needs to, if you like, uh, continue uh, injecting electric shocks, you know, to try and keep the heart beating. Sally, I'm a bit sceptical when you say that it's technical difficulties which are delaying the vaccine. Is there not a sense that there's no real urgency in this country? I mean, Britain, having made a pig's ear of the first bit of the epidemic is now rolling out the vaccine at a rate of knots and we are not. One thing that I think you can say that COVID has taught us is that there is no problem that governments can't solve when they have the willingness to throw the right amount of money at it. So so that can be said. There is some political element to to why it has gone a bit more slowly and there are decisions that were made around exactly what vaccines we would order and how much of them that kind of thing does have an impact. Sally your part of your beat is covering the public service and lots of people listening are in the public service so I, I, I don't want to be rude about this but the Commonwealth government is not very good at doing things. Brilliant at policy, it can introduce a tax change, it can do things like that. It's very good at handing out money, uh, grants to the states, uh, grants to all sorts of organisations. It's not very good at actually organising things. Now we saw that with the you know the pink bats fiasco, that was a, a policy to get houses insulated, an idea which the government then had to administer. Departments aren't used to administering things during the global financial crisis. If you think about the Commonwealth, the only thing it does, the only thing it really does, as opposed to hand out money, is um, run defence. 
and we know how that goes. So no one should have been terribly surprised that you hear all sorts of stories about surgeries being told they'd have it, the government deciding it had to happen through surgeries to start with rather than pharmacies who are perhaps are better at it. Uh, and then discovering that the, the vaccines weren't there, one person being told one thing, one another. The Commonwealth could have left this to the states who are in the service delivery business. It decided not to, and I think that might be, well, partly it's because the Commonwealth uh, has a role in distributing medicines uh, uh, through the pharmaceutical benefit scheme. But Partly it's that I think they saw the states were getting a lot of credit for what they'd been doing the last year. And so the Commonwealth said, well, We'll take that one. There is definitely a, an element of, of building the plane while you're on the runway trying to take mm. off when it comes to the vaccine rollout. As Peter says, federal government doesn't deliver things and so they had never done, apart from the fact that there hasn't been a national rollout of a vaccine on the scale that, at which we're currently trying to do, they hadn't done anything like this to draw on before. So it is really hard and, and we have to give them credit for that. It's hard and it's not something that they've had decades of developed expertise in. But at the same time, as long as Australia's population is not fully vaccinated, it does have an effect, even for people who are comfortably employed here in Australia, have given up on the idea of going to Disneyland until maybe 2023, there is still a big impact on the economy and on the country and on the very large proportion of Australians that are born overseas and have family overseas. 50%. Yeah. Except that ordinary Australians can't see that effect on the economy. I feel this very strongly myself. All the political pressure is to keep this place closed down, keep it or turn it into the hermit kingdom almost. Because why would the government, with an election maybe looming, why would the government open the borders? All the political calculation now is, if in doubt, don't. And that hurts, hurts all those people with relatives abroad, like your partner, like me. Yeah, it does. But the other element of it, and, the, and Peter would be able to um, speak better to this, is that one thing that we have seen throughout the pandemic is that it's not a decision between health and the economy because health and dealing with coronavirus well instills confidence, which then helps the economy. And while our economy is doing well, it is doing well in a kind of distorted way at the moment. There's all these weird push and pull factors. Well, house prices are doing well, <laughs> but, but um, we need immigration, partly because we're geared up for it. And it's not just immigration, which is part of it. It's tourism, which has basically the same economic effect. Uh, they, they spend uh, visitors and things like that, university students and uh, temporary migrants. We're geared up to it because, frankly, we don't have the necessary skills in lots of areas. Companies won't be able to advance what they do. Oddly enough, uh, and work from the Grattan Institute is coming out in the middle of the year uh, on this, bringing in skilled migrants tends to increase the wages of skilled Australians. The reason is that, and we know this, if, if we can think of people we know from overseas or if we've been, um, you know, moved overseas for a while, People who come to Australia work below their training. They take jobs that uh, aren't quite what they did where they were. And it's usually the Australians who are in those jobs who get promoted 
to manage them. So everything is set up, uh, house prices, uh, so to uh, housing, infrastructure, everything is set up. We're geared to take people in from overseas, whatever their function. So being without that for a period of time is a bit like as the uh, head of the Australian Industry Group said, uh, being in a gilded cage. You know, you can continue to live, uh, it's a bit like being at home, uh, uh, working through Zoom calls and things. You can continue to do it, but you don't want to keep doing it forever. The government recognises this. Its budget has uh, projections for when the borders do reopen, that uh, immigration, net uh, immigration, will increase uh, first to 100,000 and then uh, after some uh, years to 250,000, which is about what it uh, was before. Now, is there a political calculation? The Treasurer was asked that, and guess what he said? He said there wasn't. Uh, so <laughs> who knows? It is, though, bizarre, Steve, that the two things that we've just said. One is that half of us either come from overseas or have parents who come from overseas, and the other is your perception that most of us don't want more people to do so. Very strange. But, but the, the sort of the econocrats, the people who look after the economy, the government, has no doubt that we need open borders. No government ever won an election saying, let in more immigrants. Yeah, I, well, you'd have a, perhaps as an outsider, you know, coming from Britain, a better read on this than me. I'm not sure that Australians are anti-immigration. I think that's said. There are a lot of things that are said. It's said that Australians are anti-tax. Yet when you offer them the opportunity to pay a greater Medicare levy as opposed to income tax, they jump at the idea if it's for something they approve of, uh, the National Disability Health Insurance or uh, even aged care. I, I think a lot of things which are said about Australians aren't necessarily true. My feeling is that for most Australians, immigration doesn't matter one way or the other. And by the way, that, 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 that's what economic studies show. That is to say, yeah, look... Uh, Immigration might depress wages, it might also raise them, uh, it might depress employment, it obviously raises employment, it's probably a wash. One thing that's important to think about when we talk about uh, immigration and when the borders reopen and skilled migrants in the context of the budget that's been released this week is that some of the major areas of spending, for example, aged care, uh, a lot of the spending in aged care is going to increasing the workforce there. And many of the industries where the electorate is saying to the government, we need more people, this is something we value, are areas in which there are large numbers of the workforce that are coming from overseas. So that's something that needs to come into the government's calculations in how they're thinking about the border as it relates to their other big policy promises. And another thing that I find really interesting and that it's a bit of a hard thing to, to quantify is that you can't assume that the number of uh, international students, of tourists, of skilled migrants that were coming into Australia in 2019, when we reopen again, most likely at the moment it seems in the middle of 2022, you can't just assume that we're going to pick up where we left off. There are some people who are going to decide that Australia is less attractive to them now, whether they be international students who think, OK, I was going to start uni in 2021, but Australia wouldn't take me, so I went to the UK. So there's those ongoing effects and an ongoing sort of hangover that we'll have to deal with once the border is reopened. Peter, we have seen uncharacteristic spending from the Liberals. Should we be terrified by that trillion dollar number that everybody keeps quoting this week? 
<laughs> well, the Treasurer's not, and Labor's in a, a very difficult position because uh, if it says that debt is bad, they won't be believed. The only people, uh, the only side of politics with a history of saying that government debt is bad are the ones running it up. Australia has nearly always had government debt. We eliminated it briefly uh, during the uh, Howard years. Australia has nearly always had a budget in deficit. And it's always been the case, nearly always been the case, the government runs a deficit because other people are spending less than they earn, it spends more than it earns, and as a result, it gets people fully employed. Now, the Treasurer, for the time being, has embraced this. He wants unemployment to go down to below 5%, to have a four in front of it, something that has only rarely happened since uh, William McMahon was Prime Minister a long time ago. And my view is actually that he won't stop, assuming it, you know, still the Treasurer. Think about it. If you're trying to achieve something difficult and you have success, do you stop there? I think the Treasurer, he's nominated in this budget getting the unemployment rate down below 5%, I think he's determined to see how far he can push it. He said in sort of an emotional, unscripted <laughs> rant, really, he was accused of running a Labor budget. And he said, when I walk into the wilderness, I want to be proud that I stopped scarring of a generation from unemployment. He does not want to be able to have a discussion with his grandchildren and to say, look, I could have killed unemployment, I could have emerged from this recession clutching this, and I didn't do it. That's, that's his psychology as he tells it, and uh, I, I, I've no reason to disbelieve him. That's a very courageous statement for which we should salute him. He's torn up the ideology which came from Reagan and Thatcher and his own and party John Howard. when they were elected He's in just torn it up. He's had the guts to do that, yeah? Yeah. Um, that's right. You've got to bear in mind that a lot of the people who were there when uh, was Tony Abbott uh, was elected with Joe Hockey as Treasurer, Andrew Robb was going on about the, uh, uh, the evils of debt and deficit, they've all gone. So there's been a, a change in the makeup. You have, as a Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, who's totally pragmatic. He doesn't care about debt or deficit. He's a political person. And I think this happens to suit his political objectives, because you know, there's an election coming up. But I think unlike earlier Prime Ministers, certainly unlike Abbott, he's prepared to leave this to the Treasurer. Never uh, has there been such spending after we've already exited a recession. Never has anyone tried to, if you like, double down, ramp up the spending to have us leave the recession, not as we came into it, but a good deal better. The leaders that we have in place at the moment have looked in the face of a disaster unlike what their predecessors had to look at and they've sort of looked over the cliff and decided, no, we don't want a part of that and we're going to do everything we can to make sure we don't go over that cliff. And at the moment, it's going to be very politically advantageous. Everything that's been announced, spending on things like aged care, on mental health, there is a political element. It does leave Labor with not a lot to argue about, but it also comes in this context of this pandemic that's unlike what those um, predecessors had to deal you with. quoted John Howard. When there's a crisis, ideology goes out the door. That was John Howard. Sal, we were meant to be talking about vaccines. Steve's had his. When are we going to get ours? 
for those of us who are under 50 who can't get the AstraZeneca jab, it's more likely that we'll be vaccinated after October. It's going to take that long. The budget papers assume that the national vaccine rollout will be in place by the end of the year, but doesn't necessarily guarantee that we'll all get the jabs that we need by the end of the year. Sally White, Peter Martin, thank you very much. Great pleasure. Do join us again for another edition of Talk of the Times.